for a lot of analysts and people who looked at Ukraine, um, they would always suspect some kind of ethnic identity or divide where more Russian language and Ukrainian language as voters would, would favor, for example, more uh, President Poroshenko, who had more explicit Ukrainian identity campaign rather than Zelensky, who is originally a Russian speaker from a Russian speaking town. But that was not the case. And this was actually a manifestation of that change of Ukraine's identity more towards a civic identity where values such as freedom, anti-corruption, human rights, Ukraine's European future mattered more than a language you speak, the church you go to, uh, or your, your local identity. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Amanda Yun, and I am joined today by my co-host, Chris Park. For many, the name Vladimir Zelensky did not mean much until the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Yet his face and voice have become incredibly well-known to many via social media and his powerful international addresses. In this episode, we take a step back and look at his political journey from TV character to commander-in-chief and how this journey speaks to a transition point for Ukrainian politics and national identity. To answer these questions, we are joined on the podcast by Ms. Orsia Lutsevich. Orsia Lutsevich is a research fellow and manager of the Ukraine Forum in the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. She focuses on social change and the role of civil society in democratic transition in the post-Soviet region. She has coordinated and co-authored a major Chatham House report, The Struggle for Ukraine in 2017. Prior to joining Chatham House, she led the startup of Europe House Georgia and was executive director of the Open Ukraine Foundation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Rizia, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Can you briefly explain to our listeners who Vladimir Zelensky is and how he first came to be known by the Ukrainian people? Well, Zelensky comes from a show business. He is somebody who is, uh, he was the face of one of the most famous comedy show and his company called 95, Quarter 95 uh, or uh, Block 95, uh, where he was, his group of uh, really childhood friends started competing in the comedy uh, shows back in the uh, late Soviet times. And then they've set up this company that was both producing uh, TV shows, but also a lot of TV series. And uh, he was most famous for his TV series called The Servant of the People. I mean, it's available on YouTube also with an English subtitle, some of the episodes. And in that TV series, he plays a history teacher that almost by a viral posting of one of his students somehow becomes the candidate for the president of Ukraine and wins that campaign. So he, he, he is coming uh, into Ukrainian politics from TV screens, uh, and he stormed, actually, Ukraine political establishment uh, and uh, really did uh, another revolution by the ballot in uh, 2019. Great. And from what I understand, you mentioned um, his TV show, and it sounds like his presidential campaign, from what I understand from doing a little research, is that it like blended social media and his kind of TV persona, and then himself, the real-life Zelensky. So I was wondering if you could discuss what his 2019 campaign cycle was like and the extent to which it was unique for Ukrainian politics. 
Volodymyr Zelensky comes as an outsider and he wanted to, in a way, hack the political system in a different way. From the very beginning, he refused, in a way, to play by the rules of what, uh, of how an electoral campaign was run in Ukraine. So, so what he did, he was using a lot of social media, Instagram, YouTube, uh, a lot of clips actually from his TV shows. Uh, and he was talking directly to Ukrainians. Kind of a similar to, uh, if you want, Trump's campaign, where there was quite a lot of targeting uh, to uh, audiences based on their market research. But I think in, in Zelensky's case, it was much easier. The main emotion around elections was that people wanted the new faces. They wanted change and they wanted somebody who was not uh, part of the system in, in political sense. Uh, and um, in a way, Zelensky smartly played it, that he was not uh, presenting a, a lot of elaborate campaign propositions. He was almost like a blank screen where people could project their desires and their wishes for change in Ukraine uh, without imposing too much of his own narrative. He had key campaign um, themes. One was, of course, anti-corruption, saying we'll put bandits to jail and those who are stealing from Ukraine's pockets. And he was campaigning also on a peace ticket. He was saying, we need to bring peace to Ukraine. I can do it. I can, you know, look Putin's in the eyes and uh, we can we can settle this war. So um, he was, uh, in a way, um, uh, also uh, interestingly pushing his opponents, like then President Poroshenko, to uh, out of their comfort zone. So, for example, the typical presidential debate would take place similar to the United States on TV, and there will be questions from the presenters and all given equal time. So he completely scraped that idea by inviting uh, incumbent to debate in the stadium. And it was one of the biggest TV sh the political shows of the campaign where the two campaigns met actually on the football stadium, the largest football stadium in Kiev with their supporters. And they had a debate live in front of the audience. That gave him also that kind of a credibility that he is different because of what he does already in the campaign. And people like that idea and 70, more than 70 percent voted for him. Yeah. And kind of going off of that, I'm wondering if his you spoke a little bit about his core issues of um, anti-corruption. And I thought it was really interesting that you said that people were projecting what they wanted onto him as a blank canvas. I was wondering, who were his supporters? Were they primarily young people? Um, did he have bases of regional support that were particularly strong? He was supported all across Ukraine He and, and, and across generations. I mean, I would say uh, because of his um, acting career, he was well known um, mostly from the TV screens, right? He became famous not through internet uh, or medium like Instagram or TikTok, where it's more young generation watches. He was a recognizable persona for all ages. Uh, and um, that is why he captured that wise um, electoral base from east to west, uh, with the exception of one region, which sits right on the border with Poland, which is Lviv region. That is the only region where he did not win. And all other uh, regions, he basically swayed 
with the smashing victory, which was quite striking because for a lot of analysts and people who looked at Ukraine, um, they would always suspect some kind of ethnic identity or divide where more Russian language and Ukrainian language as voters would would favor, for example, more uh, President Poroshenko, who had more explicit Ukrainian identity campaign rather than Zelensky, who is originally a Russian speaker from a Russian-speaking town. But that was not the case. And this was actually a manifestation of that change of Ukraine's identity more towards a civic identity where values such as freedom, anti-corruption, human rights, Ukraine's European future mattered more than a language you speak, the church you go to, uh, or your, your local identity. So, so that was quite striking in the way that both reflected this new civic identity of Ukraine, and that is why Zelensky could win because of the changes in Ukrainian society that took place since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea, and the real mobilization of, of new Ukraine. So we touched on different aspects of President Zelensky can, President Zelensky's campaign. And as you said, in uh, 2019, he won uh, by an overwhelming margin of 73% over his opponent, uh, the uh, incumbent president at the time, Poroshenko. Why was his campaign successful? And I know we touched on a couple of different aspects, including the fact that you know he was a you know perhaps a different uh, he portrayed himself as a different candidate. But were there other factors that you know made his campaign so successful? And to what extent was his victory a surprise? Definitely what made people take and support him is desire for change. There was that emotion that people thought that somebody out of the political system, you know, if you want similar to what mobilized people for Trump, where he was campaigning clearly that I am not from uh, from the system, although Trump, I would argue, was much more embedded in American politics than Zelensky was, because Zelensky was making fun of politics. His whole uh, TV show was uh, laughing at uh, uh, Ukrainian politicians failing, actually, to deliver change. So people... Um, in a way connected to that fact that he was outside of political system. They wanted change. They believed Ukraine is going in the wrong direction and that the current political class cannot be trusted. And that is why so many people voted for him. But also, uh, I think uh, he, in a way, his campaign was his comedy show. So it was also a respite from politics. Remember, Ukraine at that time was fighting Russian war for eight years. It was a simmering conflict, but there were a lot of difficulties. People were tired and they wanted a kind of a, a, a breath of fresh air. And I think that's why Zelensky came in uh, quite successful. And, and he is the new generation. He is young. He is, he's, he's not coming from oligarchic uh, economic class. He didn't make his money in heavy industry or uh, you know, milking the budget. He came. He came to prominence and success because of creative economy, kind of a future economy, knowledge economy, and, and that is also quite significant for many to to ensure the rupture from the Soviet oligarchy kleptocracy to a, a new modern Ukraine. I think that transitions us really well to our next question, which is kind of a discussion of what Ukraine's politics were 
before the Russian invasion in February. So what domestic issues were at the forefront of Zelensky's presidential agenda? agenda? We'll get more into um, Ukraine's relationship with Russia in a little bit, but what domestic challenges was the country facing and how did he tackle those as the president? Well, one of the big issues in Ukraine is to find an answer to the question of Ukraine's uh, developmental kind of capture, because Ukraine is very resource-rich country. It has an amazing geography right at the center of Europe. It has great human capital, but it seemed to be locked into perpetual cycle of, you know, middle-income country with corruption. And this is what you know, was driving a lot Ukrainian politics is to how Ukraine can attract more foreign direct investment, integrate with the global economy, modernize, bring in issues where Ukraine has strengths. So what was happening uh, the first two and a half years of Zelensky's presidency is a fight, if you want, between the still old system of oligarchs who have influence and want to maintain Ukraine as a closed order society and forces Zelensky, but not only, also a political opposition, the young party of the uh, rock singer, uh, which is called The Voice, that came into the parliament, that were pushing for opening up the economy, creating level playing field. There was a lot of issues about fighting corruption, about rebooting the Ukrainian court system. So when Zelensky started, there was a new anti-corruption court that was finally made high anti-corruption court that was made operational. And then there was a push to have cleanup of the high council of judiciary that was in a way locking the old practices in courts and not allowing real justice to happen. Significant thing happened under Zelensky was the land reform, where the parliament finally lifted the moratorium on the um, creating a land market so that farmers could use land as collateral for loans. And of course, there was an issue of um, European integration. This is something Ukrainians aspire, and there was a push to... Uh, for more from the European Union, uh, quite a lot of summit discussions about um, liberalizing access to European markets even more, updating Ukraine's uh, free trade agreement, uh, opening up, uh, uh, lifting quotas. Um, and this, this was the agenda. It's basically how Ukraine can build market economy that is compatible with with the rule-based um, European and, and global economy? And how can Ukraine, you know, become a member of the transatlantic community? Yeah, that's great. And I think that so the other kind of question, of course, facing Ukraine during this period is its relationship with Russia, something that has kind of been a challenge to its almost national identity since its formation. So I'm curious, what was Zelensky's stance on Russia early on in his presidency? How did it differ from his predecessors? And did it match up well with, obviously it seemed to match up well with what the public wanted since he won with such an overwhelming margin. Um, but kind of what was his philosophy early on in dealing with Russia? From the early days of his presidency, Zelensky really toned down kind of aggressive rhetoric against Russia. He wanted to 
keep an opportunity open to negotiate with Putin. So he was never calling kind of a spade a spade. He was very cautious not to call Russia an aggressor or Putin a killer, you know. He was he was very careful with his rhetoric because genuinely coming from the east of Ukraine, from Krivirih, I think he understands the destruction and suffering the war causes for, you know, millions of Ukrainians there. And of course, he saw it, you know, personally as his mission and a historic chance to perhaps try to mend, uh, you know, uh, relations with Russia and to achieve some kind of a settlement. A lot of people thought that was naive. And uh, they're thinking at that time in Kiev, in, you know, policymakers, journalists, pundits, if you want, was that the real keys to the solution of the war is in the Kremlin. That no matter what uh, Ukraine does, if Putin doesn't want to have peace, there will be no peace. So that kind of um, appeasing, if you want, rhetoric towards uh, uh, Putin was um, um, was viewed with caution. Uh, and ahead of that summit, the, the, there was summit in Paris of the Normandy that included Ukraine, Russia, Germany, and France at the heads of state level. That was the only meeting between Zelensky and Putin that actually took place. Um, there was a lot of anxiety that Zelensky would give in some issues, such as, for example, having local elections without Russians, troop withdrawal in the occupied Donbass, that he may agree to a special status uh, but that is why at that time there was quite strong anti-capitulation movement that included political opposition, civil society, veterans that were saying we have to stand by Ukraine's national interests. And, and Zelensky understood that, you know, that for any settlement with Russia, he has to have society on board. And he calibrated, of course, his um, negotiating position with Moscow. And right after that, he really cracked down on Putin's man in Ukraine, um, Viktor Medvedchuk, who uh, Putin is the godfather uh, of his children, so they have a very close relation. And he was always kind of a mediator in prisoner exchanges and other things. And he shut down Russian TV channels because he, at the po at some point, arrived to a conclusion that Russia, through these people and this information, is doing much more damage to Ukraine uh, than um, there is an um, advantage of kind of keeping that doors open. And since then, there was a strong crackdown on Russian uh, kind of um, influence inside Ukraine. Russian companies were sanctioned. Uh, Russian TV channels were sanctioned, and Medvedchuk was arrested. Uh, he was under home arrest for, on treason charges. So that was the turning moment when things really started to escalate on a political level. Great. And kind of contrasting that, what was Zelensky's relationship like with Western powers, um, the United States, the EU, and NATO? I know that we talked about his desire to build economic relationships with them, but how did that evolve or align with public opinion on Russia's relationship with um, Ukraine and Russia's relationship with the West? Well, we must remember that since 2014, since the Euromaidan uprising and then the annexation of Crimea, Ukrainian society has made its choice. 
Ukraine wants to become a member of the European Union. Ukraine wants to become a member of NATO. Ukraine wants to become a normal, safe, successful European country. And uh, whoever is the president in Ukraine has to deliver on that agenda. That is why to achieve that success, Ukraine needs a strategic, strong relationship with the United States for obvious reasons. Because the United States is, you know, a, a leader in in the NATO bloc, and especially with Biden administration, U.S. was coming back to Europe, in mending its transatlantic relationship. So Ukraine was always reaching out to uh, Brussels and to Washington, especially to deliver on this integration um, project agenda. Uh, let's also, you know, step back and uh, recall that. Um, Zelensky had to deal with Trump and also that was a complicated relationship because Trump wanted to, um, you know, uh, um, in a way, drag Ukraine into U.S. internal politics and the whole impeachment that was launched basically on Ukraine's case um, because he wanted to use leverage military aid to Ukraine for favors on investigation on Biden's son inside Ukraine. So there, there was a joke that Russians were trying so hard, you know, to help Trump become the president while Ukraine may undermine Trump's presidency. And I think to a large degree, you know, Trump's presidency was undermined by that impeachment uh, scandal and a result of um, change of power in the White House. Um, so uh, Zelensky had to start a relationship with Biden from scratch. Uh, and I think they, they've managed to establish quite good rapport and, and a meeting in the, uh, that took place between the two. Uh, and it's interesting that after that meeting in the White House, Zelensky also flew into California. He met with the uh, Silicon Valley leaders, and you could see how now some of them are actually helping on the private side, Elon Musk and, and others, um, to uh, ensure that Ukraine has also support um, from that community to prevail over Russia. So that is important partnership, and Ukraine wants to develop more and more. There were ideas of uh, special NATO non-allied status that would uh, provide more armaments to Ukraine way before the war. So they were always trying to explore opportunities. I wanted to shift the conversation to talk about the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Um, we've heard a lot since the beginning of the invasion about how you know Russia has considered Ukraine as you know a part of you know its country um, and um, was concerned about you know Ukraine drifting away from its sphere of influence um, since the fall of the Soviet Union. You've also talked about how Zelensky led a more cosmopolitan campaign, perhaps you know trying to incorporate Russian-speaking um, parts of Ukraine into the fold of Ukraine as a country, while also seeking dialogue with uh, Moscow. More than his um, uh, uh, that, uh, 2019 opponent, uh, the incumbent president Poroshenko. I wanted to ask why the invasion took place now and perhaps was there any personal animosity towards the idea of a Zelensky presidency um, from Russia or should this not be understood as a response to the personal like victory of President Zelensky in Ukraine in 2019? 
I think the, 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 the framework that is helpful to understand what is going on is that it's Ukraine's war for independence. It's anti-colonial war. Putin is convinced that Ukraine is not a nation. He's been convinced in that from the very beginning. He believes Ukraine is part of his proper. Uh, um, and he manipulates history to make that case mostly to his Russian people, because anybody who is uh, uh, versed in the history of Europe understands that Ukraine is a nation that for some time had no state. That is true. There were long periods where Ukrainian nation existed uh, between different empires and without a state. But that is a nation. Uh, and, and I think no matter who is the president of Ukraine, uh, the only way Putin can tolerate Ukraine is that when it is subjugated to Russia and when Kyiv does what Putin dictates. And, and honestly, in the last 25 years, there, there was a kind of coerced uh, control by Russia of Ukraine through energy flows, through economy, through infiltration in security services, through elite uh, proximity. But all of that, you know, there was this rupture that was gradual because Ukrainian and Russian society diverged in its political culture. Ukraine is partial democracy, Russian is autocracy, right? It's a very despotic totalitarian country. Ukraine is decentralized. Ukraine has free and fair elections. Ukraine has free media. Ukraine is tolerant to LGBTQI community. It's a very different animal. So Putin decided to act now because the longer the time was passing, the more he saw that rupture. And he, Ukraine was slipping away from his control. And Putin needs that legacy project of gathering Russian lands inspired by imperial history, not so much by the Soviet history, where honestly his hatred to Lenin is driven by the fact that Lenin did recognize nationalities and there were kind of national republics as constituent parts of the Soviet Union. No, Putin wants to de-Ukrainize Ukraine. So when he talks about that denazification, and people don't really understand what it means, that infamous article in RIA Novosti yesterday, that I'm sure is by now translated into English and people can read it, actually calls to solve the Ukraine question by de-Ukrainizing the country, by erasing Ukrainian nation its language, its identity from, from the from Earth. This is very, very dangerous dynamic. So this is the game in town. That's why we see such brutalities of Russian army targeting civilians, kidnapping mayors, killings, intimidation, the war of terror and annihilation. This is what's happening. And it's happening because of Putin's illusion of what the world is and what is the mission of Russia in Europe. Since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I'm wondering how Zelensky's leadership and presidency has been tested and what we have come to know about his leadership style. Also, how has Zelensky um, been as a military decision maker? I think there was a certain reverse moment of, of, of Zelensky, the moment when he refused the airlift offered by Biden, when uh, 
there was news that the mercenaries basically had hunting him and uh, the the goal of of russian operation is to incapacitate ukrainian political leadership and the moment he he said i don't need an airlift uh the battle is here i need munitions and i'm staying with my people that gave a lot of confidence in him as a leader to many ukrainians who you know all too human have doubts how a person may behave under the circumstances these are extraordinary circumstances of uh, ukraine having to fight the second largest army on earth and um you know we all have vulnerabilities and and fears and and i think that the fact that zelensky demonstrated that courage backed by subsequent successes of ukrainian armed forces gave a lot of um confidence also to millions of ukrainians that victory is possible that um you know ukraine will fight because it's an existential war for ukraine's independence uh and uh and the world will stand by ukraine to assist and to support to help ukraine and zelensky in a way was speaking to two audiences from the first and even three audiences he was speaking to ukrainians he was speaking to russians in russian addressing them and he was speaking to um to western allies and he keeps maintaining if you if you follow what he does these three tracks every day he speaks to ukrainians in the evening explaining the situation on the ground he from time to time addresses russian people he gives interviews to russian media to explain that this is not their war that this is the war of um several men who captured russia from the fsb and who have imperial uh, mania and they are ready to kill millions of russians and ukrainians for that ambition and he talks to the west saying this is not just about ukraine and putin is not only here to kill ukrainians he is after the global uh world order he is after destroying um alliance of uh, transatlantic unity and he wants to establish his grip on wider europe not just uh, as states of the former soviet union uh you see his change in in clothing in his face i mean everybody aged everybody became uh, you know more resolute more i think mature including zelensky and when you see that image from bucha when he is there with his people facing the horrors you can see on one hand big grief but also determination to bring justice to ensure that never again such horrors happen in europe and also to fight back russia and liberate those territories of ukraine that are now under temporary occupation in the south because similar things are happening there and uh that is why he uh, calls to the west for lethal weapons for s- substantial assistance that will allow to liberate ukrainian cities great and So the international community has come to know him through these videos like you were saying I'm wondering how successful has he been and how have these videos been received by the international community did they help foster that greater support and international commitment that he was looking for From what I know from feedback p- people and I think 
both because he addresses often formally the parliaments of different countries globally, but also informally ministers during Council of uh, you know European Union meetings and the parliaments. I think they are quite they are quite um, impactful because the way he speaks in in simple language, the way he um, appeals with the concrete suggestions, the way he you he communicates urgency because he speaks what millions of Ukrainians want to say to Europeans that don't leave us alone. Let's stand together. Together we can win. Ukrainians show that Russian army is not as invincible as many thought. And I think he has also a challenge of uh, overcoming that miscalculation also on the West part, because it's not only Putin who miscalculated Ukraine, thinking that he can take over Kiev in three days, but also the West miscalculated that Ukraine will collapse sooner than it, than it did and provided, honestly, military assistance for guerrilla war fighting rather than for sustained defense and counteroffensive for Ukrainian armed forces. So he has to instill that confidence in Western partners that Ukraine will fight, that rotten peace is, is worse than no peace, and that um, that is the sentiment that Ukrainians share. If you look at number of people who believe that Ukraine can repel Russian aggression, today it's 90%. So I think that confidence, he tries to share that confidence with the world and to keep mobilization of the world and keep ramping up assistance, both, both military and economic, to Ukraine, because that is key. We've talked a lot about the different audiences that Zelensky has when he's um, making his addresses. And his in his speeches to the international community, Zelensky balances a fine line between advocating for peace and employing strong nationalistic rhetoric on Ukraine's right to self-defense, and rightfully so. As we think about how this conflict might progress in the coming weeks and months, how does Zelensky balance a need for peace with a desire to maintain Ukrainian identity and sovereignty? And like you just said, you know, a flawed peace is still, you know, is still peace. And, you know, there is that urgent need to bring human suffering to an end. So how does he balance these two, you know, seemingly contradictory goals? Well, just just a correction. I don't want to be misunderstood. I think the bad peace will be rejected in Ukraine because Ukraine has already had bad ceasefire called Minsk Protocols. Uh, that were negotiated, that were actually never implemented and were used to destabilize Ukraine from within all the time. So there's a very clear understanding that a ceasefire without Russia's agreement to pull out of the occupied territories will not be accepted. And of course, the answer to your question, when and how, will be to a large degree decided by the general staff of Ukrainian armed forces, depending on its capacity to sustain defense and counteroffensive. And that is, you know, information that few people at this point know. What we understand is that Ukrainians are successful in liberating some of the uh, areas previously taken by Russians, that we see 
substantial boost up in Western military assistance to provide capabilities that are needed. And of course, uh, for Zelensky personally, and it has always been the case, human being, the value of life, and, and it is central. And this is, again, a difference between Ukraine and Russia, where Russian soldiers are being shuffled on trains somewhere in Belarus. And we have also reports of mobile crematoriums, you know, being used to discard of Russian dead soldiers, while Ukrainian state and people are trying to protect every life they can. But you see that Russians are exactly deploying the tactic of using civilians as uh, hostages and as the blackmail for Ukraine's capitulation. People understand that. And of course, Zelensky said, all these decisions are taking not, being taken not so much on a political level about which city to surrender, how to evacuate people, but very much it's a military strategy. Because remember, Russians attack kind of choked because they could not take cities in the south. That Mariupol, in a way, prevents the attack on Odessa. So um, Russians will not fight an honest war following Geneva Conventions. They, they have been not doing this in Syria, uh, in Chechnya, and they were not doing, following those rules in, in Donbass in the first war. So it's a very difficult line to walk, but I think if Zelensky combines the information of the armed forces together with mood of public opinion and capacity of the West to stand by Ukraine, some solution will emerge. But it's too early to say what kind of a solution. The end game for Ukraine is to pull Russian troops back to where they were on the 24th of February, 2022. Before we began our conversation today, we talked about the collective trauma and challenges that Ukrainian people are facing right now. And, you know, we've talked about how the horrifying images from Bucha um, with civilians, hundreds of civilians being killed um, by Russian forces, perhaps it doesn't even capture the full extent of the violence um, that Russian forces are um, carrying out in Ukraine. I'm wondering, we don't know when the war will end, or like you said, how the war would end. But what would be Zelensky's role? And do you have confidence in Zelensky in holding his country together, moving forward, and potentially, um, you know, its path to victory, but also collective healing of the Ukrainian people? Well, I think it's way, way too early to talk about how collective healing could look like. But I think like in any trauma, it's at this point, many Ukrainians find it difficult to verbalize. I talk to my friends in Ukraine and some of them simply cannot say words, you know, and all that trauma will be locked in Ukraine and will have to be, you know, dealt with. But I, I, I was saying even way before this war, the second, what I call Ukraine-Russian war of the century, is that Ukraine is deeply traumatized nation before that. Ukraine was one of the most purged Soviet 
republics by Stalin. There were purges, there was famine, artificial famine, Holodomor in the 30s. There were uh, destruction of all Ukrainian creative class writers. But despite all of that, you and then, then, then Chernobyl, and this is just to name things that happened to Ukraine, there was huge indiscriminate violence that trauma, tra- traumatized Ukraine to a large degree. So Ukraine emerged, you know, as an independent state with all that experience that now adds on top this war. So I know that Ukraine will have to deal with this. A famous Ukrainian historian, Yaroslav Hrytsak, calls Ukraine has to overcome its past, but not to forget it, but to come to terms with this horror. But also, I know that at this point, a lot of Ukrainians really emerge with the confidence and and self-confidence that was always suppressed by Russia by instilling this complex of inferiority. Oh, it's a little brother Ukraine. Oh, you know, it's somewhere over there on the on the borderland of Russia. Putin doesn't even believe in the name of Ukraine as a country, but as a geographic function of Russia. So what happened in one month with this horrific war is that Ukrainians are emerging and shattering this complex of inferiority. They will never ever live in the shadow of the Russian empire. And they are confident that this Russian empire will collapse finally, and it's because it will choke on Ukraine. So we we living in the true historic moment of what the future of Eurasian continent may look like. Let's remember that Russia is not a nation state in the true sense of the word. Russia is still an imperial construction that may still be collapsing and losing its territory. I'm not talking about territories. No, I'm talking about Russia proper because it is composed of different nations living in the Russian empire today. So we will see the reshaping of the continent for sure. When and how this will happen, it's hard to tell. But Ukraine has started the process of the beginning of imperial, the process of an end of Russian empire, which um, will be... um, evolving, you know, in the next 10 years. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was a fantastic conversation and I certainly learned a lot and we really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.